Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Are you a good person? If so, how do you know? If not, do you want to be a better person? If you want to be a better person, how do you achieve this? How do you develop moral character? These are questions that we often spend a lot of time thinking about late at night or while we're driving, listening to a public radio or a podcast like this, or when we're just caught alone in some moment with our solitude. And yet, very few of us are equipped to actually answer these questions. If you can identify with that feeling, then I've got the guest for you. His name is Christian Miller. He's the author of a book called The Character Gap. He's a moral philosopher. Yes, these exist. It's even a full-time gig. He's at Wake Forest University, and he's written, studied, and thought about character for his entire adult life. We had a great conversation about character and its nature and how you develop it, build it, and sustain it. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I give you Christian Miller. Christian, welcome to the podcast. It's great to be with you today. It's great to be with you. And you have written a book and you're on character called The Character Gap. And you've spent your life as a moral philosopher studying character and how we develop it, how we kind of grow in it, or how we have, you know, sometimes a lack of it in our lives. What got you into character questions? Like, at what point were you like, hey, I want to be the, I'm going to be that guy. That studies <laughs> human character and morality. I mean, well, I have maybe not a very interesting answer, but it, there is a definite point. So I started out in graduate school at Notre Dame, uh, getting my PhD in philosophy, but in a different area of philosophy. So I was working on questions of the foundations of ethics. Where does morality come from? Is it objective? Is it relative? Um, do we human beings make it up or not? And I worked on that for my PhD, got my first job at Wake Forest University, was tenure track there. Uh, still working on those issues. And eventually I just kind of got burned out. Uh, I said what I wanted to say. I published what I wanted to publish. And I, I didn't really want to work on that topic anymore. So I was looking for something else to work on. And there was at the time a uh, active debate in philosophy about whether character even existed in light of research coming from psychology. So psychological experiments, which suggested to some people that character might be an illusion. And so this was bold. This was interesting, novel. Uh, and I thought, wow, um, uh, I want to check that out. I want to see what's going on here. And so that's really the turning point um, about 15 years ago or so, where I got sucked into this literature and psychology and this empirical research and its implications for character. And then it's been uh, no, no looking back ever since. Um, I've been This has been my main uh, area of interest and in research for the last 15 years. So why would people debate in psychological circles whether character really even exists or not? What would be the kind of main criticism or... What would be the source of skepticism about character? Because it's it's on some level, it seems like such a commonplace thing that most of us believe in and take for granted, right? We we term we we throw the term character around all the time in popular layman's 
circles. So what, what would make people skeptical about it? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, so let, let me back up, maybe do this in two parts. First, just say a little bit more about what I mean by character, and then connect that to the psychological research. So character, the way I'm using it, and the way the philosophers and the psychologists are using it, we're thinking about uh, character traits, which are aspects of your psychology that can lead you to think, feel, and act a certain way. So they're the good character traits, the virtues, things like honesty, temperance, courage, justice, and fortitude. They're the bad character traits, the vices, things like dishonesty, cowardice, and sloth. Uh, and then when we kind of package those together, you could say there's good character, there's bad character. That's a function of whether you have these particular character traits. Um, now, having said that, uh, there's an empirical question, not a philosophical definitional question, but an empirical question of whether people actually have these character traits at all. Let's focus on the, on the good ones, the virtues. Uh, we certainly talk that way and we're comfortable with that language. And we have you know, works of fiction depicting characters of virtue. We have heroes and exemplars like Abraham Lincoln when it comes to honesty. But when you do the careful psychological research and you put people into specific controlled environments, do you see them acting virtuously? If you expected most people to have the virtues, then you would expect to see in these studies a consistent pattern of virtuous behavior. So this study looks at cheating. Okay, not many people cheated. This study looks at lying. Not many people lying. This study looks at helping. Lots of people helped. Well, lo and behold, when you actually run the studies or in retrospect, um, go back and look at studies that have been done for the last 50 years, what you find is that you do not see a consistent pattern of virtuous behavior. What, what you instead see is a very mixed pattern, a pattern where in some situations people behave well and other situations people don't behave well. But what you do not see is that consistent cross-situationally con uh, uh, kind of stable pattern of good behavior that you would expect of a virtuous person. Now, there are lots more to, to say there, but let me, I'll, I'll stop there. And that's, that's what initially fostered the skepticism about widespread virtue was these results from these studies. Yeah, it's interesting too, because you quote, I forget who the who the figure is, but you quote like characters is is who you are when no one's watching, right? I mean, it is easier, right, to to be virtuous when you think you're going to be rewarded, right? Nietzsche said something, right? Like the problem with Christian morality is it wants to be rewarded, right, right, right. And, and so, but that's all of us, right? Many of us are are like this um, that we're much more reliably um, virtuous, or 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 we exhibit character when people are watching you did this you did this great uh you had this great um uh study i loved where the somebody asked or you or you didn't do it yourself but you quote it in the and you use it in the book you talk about these people coming out of a bathroom a crowded bathroom and somebody asked them as they're coming out of this crowded bathroom uh, if hey i can my friend needs these notes can you run it down the hall i don't have time or whatever can you just run and people i guess because there's a crowd in the bathroom they're embarrassed if they're not nice whereas if the control group is just walking down the hallway and 101 kind of asks the person's probably is much less likely to help out right that's right yeah so if you need help go hang around crowded bathroom <laughs> that's what that's that's my joke that's what i said <laughs> you steal my joke um, i mean it might not be sanitary right but I mean, hey. right, right. afterwards yeah not not beforehand um so yeah so let me uh make two points here first um that study illustrates what i was trying to explain in a more abstract uh way so a 
here we're talking about the virtue of compassion. A compassionate person is someone who's reliable in helping others and also from a good underlying motivation or, or uh, good motives. We can, we can explore that too, but at least externally, the behavior is helpful. And you would not expect a compassionate person's behavior to vary extensively based upon whether they're coming out of a bathroom or not. That's a trivial situational factor from a moral perspective. That shouldn't make a difference to a compassionate person. And yet, lo and behold, it did make a difference. There was a dramatic uh, increase in helping behavior when people were coming out of a bathroom as opposed to just walking down a hall. And then you gave correctly the, the underlying psychological explanation, which that it seems to be a matter of embarrassment relief. So that if you're feeling a, some slight degree of embarrassment, you also want to re alleviate that feeling of embarrassment. Well, helping others can be a means to alleviate that feeling of embarrassment. So you're more inclined to help. But that also is uh, not what I would expect of a compassionate person. That's not a the behavior is odd from a compassion perspective, but also the motivation is now odd. I would expect a compassionate person to be selfless in their motives as opposed to helping based upon whether their feelings of embarrassment would be alleviated. So that's one study, very interesting uh, one, but just one, one data point. When I aggregate a whole bunch of other studies like that together and I see this kind of pattern of mixed behavior and also of mixed motivation, then I, like some other philosophers, uh, say, well, maybe virtue is not so widespread after all. Um, maybe virtue is is more rare than it is widespread. Um, and so actually, I'm in agreement with those people who think uh, that the psychological evidence can tell something a little bit um, pessimistic about the extent to which we're good people. Yeah, you make the point in the introduction of the book that it, it's you're quite realistic. You say, look, most of us are probably not as good or, or as bad as we think we're. We, like, you know, that we're a mixed bag. And most of us think we're a good person because we're capable, right? I mean, there's no, um, what did uh, Jeff Goldblum's character say in The Big Chill? You can get through a day without food or without sex, but you can't get through a day without a good rationalization, right? <laughs> so, like, so we're often rationalizing to ourselves, right? Maybe we're less rational animals than maybe rationalizing animals. And we're always telling us these stories to make ourselves feel good and eliminate cognitive dissonance and things like that. So we often tell ourselves we're better than we are. That's right. Definitely. And you, you have a much more kind of realistic approach to character that we're, we're a mixed bag. But there's hope that, that things can be done to sort of develop character and you, and you can over time. Right. And this is kind of, I guess, you know, a very an idea that's very prominent in Aristotle, that the more you act in accordance with the virtues, the more virtuous you, you become. You kind of fake it till you make it. Right, 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 right. So let me, let me uh, highlight a couple points from that. Um, first of all, it's really important to, to note what you said, that um, my view is not the super pessimistic one, that we're all vicious people. You could say, oh, okay, this Miller guy is saying we're not as good as we thought we were. We don't have many vice virtues. That must mean we're wretched, we're, we're vicious. And I say, no, 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 wait a minute. That's not the implication of the research either. The implication is that we're a mixed bag. We have some good sides to our character, but not enough typically to be virtuous. But we also have some bad sides to our character, but not enough typically to be vicious either. So I call that in the murky middle, uh, this middle mixed character picture of how most of us are. It's also a bell curve idea here. So it's not saying all people are like this. So I have you know the idea that uh, a few people might have crossed the threshold into becoming virtuous. So we can pick our favorite moral saints and heroes and exemplars. And then it's not so surprising to say that a few people are uh, are pretty deplorable, you know, wicked, awful people. We can pick our favorite Hitlers and Stalins there. Um, but most of us are in this middle ground. Well, okay, are we stuck there? So I'll, you know, our, the first part of our discussion is just evaluating how we tend to actually be. But then you brought up, well, what can we do moving forward? One 
possibility is that the answer is nothing. Like, you know, maybe if you look at the psychological research as well, it's going to say our character is fixed, it's hardwired, there's nothing we can do about it. Um, if that's the case, that's disappointing. That's, uh, I would, I would, uh, I would be gloomy after I heard that. This would be, this would be the Seinfeld thesis, right? No hugging, no learning. Right, 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 right. Um, uh, but thankfully, it's not the case. Um, so it turns out that the research backs up Aristotle's observation thousands of years ago that character change is possible. And fortunately, it's not immediate, though. It's not like you can flip a switch or take a pill. Well, at least not yet. Maybe, you know, we'll see a couple hundred years. Uh, take a pill to transform yourself from being mixed to honest or mixed to compassionate. So instead, what we have to work with are some messy strategies, none of which is foolproof, none of which is going to give us a linear progression towards virtue, but that if implemented over time, we can make some gradual progress molding and shaping our character more towards virtue than it already is. And this is, where, this is why things like AA probably seem to work, right? You got The whole idea of like, you go in there and people in recovery, they're 90 meetings, 90 days, you get in with this group of people who presumably can mentor you along because they've been in the recovery journey longer and, and, and you're in a group, it's social and communal. And so you kind of, there's this infectious nature. You, you, you keep acting in accordance with the virtues and eventually you, you experience a, a, a real renovation. That, that sounds right to me. I, I don't, I don't, I've not researched it extensively, but what you just described is, is uh, in line with what I'm thinking about with character improvement. Um, and there, and there's, there's, there are multiple facets to it. So I wish I could just now come along and say, here's the one strategy or here are the 10 steps and just follow these steps, you know, simple steps and, and it'll work out. But there, there are different pieces or components that have to be kept in mind. One is social, for example, and environmental. What kind of situation are you in? What kind of environmental pressures are you facing? Um, another is interpersonal. Uh, you know, what, what kind of people do you have, have around you? And that, of course, relates to the social too. A third, though, is... Um, what active steps can you take on your own? What kind of um, concrete strategies can you adopt? And this is what I focus on the most. Um, so I, in, the, in the book, I talk about three different um, specific strategies for character improvements uh, that people can implement even if uh, their environment isn't ideally conducive. They can still implement these strategies for trying to become a better person. And um, we can get into them or not, uh, but at least... I'll at least say if they're in the book. Yeah, yeah. You talk about like things like nudging, right? Um, you know that that we can um, uh, things like nudging. You also interestingly look at how things work in religious communities, right? How 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 people tell theological stories yeah. about faith and hope and love, and you get in a community and actually you you start to embody these these stories, right? Communally, right. So there. So there are lots of um, ideas going on here. I want to be clear that when I turn to character improvement, I first outline secular strategies or strategies that are available to everyone, regardless of whether they have a religious background or not. And it's only in the final chapter that I talk in a more, like a more religious framework about uh, how character improvement can look if you happen to be religious. But I wanted to make it clear to readers that you know, if you're not religious, you could just leave aside that last chapter and still get something out of the, the earlier chapters. So um, a couple ideas that first are secular. Uh, one is the nudging, picking up on the nudging theme. And that's I tie into the idea of moral reminders. So um, these are things we can do to get our perspective back to where it needs to be, morally speaking. So it's easy to get 
sidetracked where we caught up with in the moment uh, on social media or um, something that's very tempting or in our, in our self-interest. And a moral reminder can serve the function of, okay, remind, you know, gets me to remember that I value and I think it's important to be an honest person or to be a caring person or to be a loyal person. To make it a little bit less abstract, uh, in a particular study that I like to use, um, participants uh, were taking a test and in one variation, they had the opportunity to cheat. They knew that they would get uh, uh, 50 cents per correct answer on the test. They would be able to cheat and get away with it, no questions asked, and many of them did. There was significant cheating. In another variation of the study, there was an honor code. These are students at, at their school. There's an honor code where the students signed the honor code first, which is going to be the moral reminder, gets their perspective back to where it needs to be. Um, and then they took the same test with the same monetary incentive. Lo and behold, uh, no cheating at all, or very little cheating. So that honor code served as a moral reminder to get people's perspective oriented back to where it needed to be. Um, that's one strategy where I think we could implement that in our lives, with everything from daily readings to diaries um, to text messages that have a, a moral uh, reminder function, uh, I think is, is really valuable. Um, a second strategy, just to, to shift gears a little bit, uh, looks at moral exemplars. So um, this has a social and a communal aspect to it. It also can connect to the AA point. Um, but having people in one's life who uh, are better than me in some respect, they don't have to be re better than me in every respect, but in some area of weakness in my life, I know of someone who is doing much better and I can look to that person as a role model a source of inspiration as an exemplar for how I should live my life and then try to improve in that area. So it can be fictional people, many people consider Jesus or um, Socrates or Confucius or Gandhi to be moral exemplars. Uh, it can be a more, a more interpersonal level. So a neighbor, a friend, a uh, family member, an AA member, um, whatever that person, whoever that person might be, they can be a source of admiration followed by inspiration, inspiring me to change my life so that it better mirrors their life as opposed to bringing their life down to my level. Um, so that's the, the, the really important role, I think, of exemplars. Um, and then just, just to finish here, I'll stop going on for so long. Uh, the third strategy, which I highlight a lot in the book, is um, greater self-awareness. Um, this is what I call getting the word out, uh, which is learning more about the relevant research and uh, and just more about how our own mind works, because there are aspects of our mind that we're not aware of ordinarily that can keep us back from being virtuous, hold us back. To uh, tie into an earlier study that you mentioned, the role of embarrassment is often underappreciated. We don't realize how much embarrassment controls our behavior, alleviating embarrassment and also fear of embarrassment. And when we're more aware of that, we can take steps to counteract it. Um, so not just uh, alleviating embarrassment, but it, we, we often uh, fear getting embarrassed in the first place and so will not help in emergency situations when others in a group are doing nothing to help, the so-called bystander or group effect. Uh, we learn more about what's going on though psychologically, why we're uh, not helping, why we're afraid to step up to the plate because of the role of embarrassment. We think, okay, that's not a good reason and we can work to counteract that. So greater self-awareness an understanding of our own minds and our less than virtuous tendencies can help us uh, work uh, work in, in 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 the direction of becoming more virtuous. It seems like there's a couple big approaches to the moral life, right? One is probably more like consequence uh, oriented, like you know what brings about the most good for the most people, 
some people call it utilitarianism. Some this is outcomes, and others kind of commitment based, right? This is kind of I've got these moral rules, and I'll never break them. And they're universals, or they they come from a religious text, or someone like Immanuel Kant thinks they come. There's these universal things that kind of come about through rational moral reflection that are true for everybody. But the way you're focusing on is 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 not consequences or commitments. It's it's mostly character, which is sort of probably the most internally regulated one. Right where it it it's it's less about uh, what you're doing or the consequences of what you do, but you're focusing on who you are, right? And 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 the uh, you know Nietzsche says this great thing: there's nothing more important than having a personal sense of style. But even that, I take as a kind of character argument. I mean, Nietzsche's thinking you you kind of person you want to be really attentive to the kind of person you're becoming and developing. So that I mean, is that fair that you're kind of that you think the biggest promise for moral formation is sort of the more the 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 system that's mo- most internally rooted and regulated. That, that's right. Um, so the three positions you outlined can be put to work in different ways. Um, you're framing them in terms of moral formation, which approach would be best for moral formation. Another way to frame them is in terms of criteria for right action. So philosophers would say. You know, can you come up with a test to tell me whether my action is right or not? And utilitarians come along and they say, well, yeah, I can give you one. It's does your action maximize overall happiness? If it does, then it's right. And Kantians can come along and they say, does your action treat others as ends, never merely as means? Or they might say instead, can we universalize that action? And then they say, if you can, then, it, then it's obligatory. And in the virtue crowd, which is the, the kind of character approach, um, they come along and say, well, well, would a virtuous person do that action in those circumstances? If so, that's the right action. That's the, the way that those three views are typically uh, marshaled out and developed and discussed in, in ethics and in, in ethical philosophy. Um, interesting, the way you framed it was more in terms of moral formation. How should we go about thinking of shaping our lives and the lives of other people in the most morally um, formative way possible? And I, I would agree with what you said. Um, so I think a consequence approach and a content approach are not as promising here as a more character-based approach. So we should start with uh, what kind of person should we become and then take steps to trying to become that kind of person. And what kind of person we should become is a matter of character. It's not just a matter of bringing about good consequences in the world. It's not just a matter of following rules. It's first and foremost about internal dispositions, internal psychology. So for me, um, having a good character, yes, of course, you have to behave well, but you have to have, to have two other things too. You have to have virtuous motivation and you have to have, have virtuous thinking so to, to make that a little bit less abstract. Um, an honest person. So, you know, I want to become an honest person and I want my children, I want my cha- children to be shaped in the direction of being honest people. But that's not just a matter of every time they're in a social situation, they tell the truth. That leaves it open what led them to tell the truth or me to tell the truth. Um, not motivation matters here because if it's ultimately a matter of they they or me, we didn't want to um, get in trouble or get punished, or we wanted to get rewards in the afterlife or these other self-interested motives, then for me, that doesn't count as honesty. That's not virtuous motivation. And the same thing, the thinking had better be appropriate too. Um, why did you come to that conclusion had better be formed for good reasons? So for me, to sum it up, uh, moral formation, you want to take it in the direction of good thinking, good motivation, which ultimately in turn give rise to good behavior. It's interesting. You know, in your chapter on honesty and lying, that we lie to the people we know more than people we don't, right? Well, we, we, we do depends on the kind of 
kind of lie we want to tell as well. Um, so we might feel more comfortable telling certain lies to certain people as opposed to other kinds of lies to other people. Um, so if it's people we know, we often want to, we're willing to tell more severe lies to protect ourselves from being exposed. Um, now, what does that mean? Uh, if it's people we know and we've done something really wrong, we might really want to protect ourselves more so than if it's just a stranger. Um, so, you, but you're right. Yeah, yeah. I sorry. I, I probably made it more complex than I need to. Um, the different the type of lie we tell depends upon whether we know the person well or not. Uh, but it looks like overall, in the course of a day and a week, we we lie fairly regularly. Right. Um, Have you ever seen the movie Crimes and Misdemeanors? <laughs> uh, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, I teach that movie every semester at Wake Forest in my introduction to philosophy class. I love that film. I, I love I, it. Yeah. And the uh, the concluding scene is interesting because it's sort of your book is kind of a, a direct sort of refutation of of that scene where the guy sort of says spoiler alert, but guys, if, if you're listening to this, you know it's an old film, so you know I'm 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 permitting myself to do spoiler spoilers here. But when the guy who's kind of committed this perfect crime just says he kind of gets over it and he's drinking a little more heavily and he kind of self-medicating and he's done the perfect crime, he's got away with it and he just, and there was no consequences, right, for him. And he just kind of went about his life. Now, my guess is you're pretty skeptical that that's possible, that that's going to, that it's going to really be that harmless or that, I mean, it, 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 it I mean, the, the conclusion of the film makes it seem as though that uh, he kind of got away with it, not just got away with it, he could live with it pretty well. Yes, that's that's right. Um, so this is, by the way, for listeners who aren't familiar with the film, this is a Woody Allen film from 1989, I think, or 1990, somewhere around there, uh, called Crimes and Misdemeanors. It has an all-star cast, uh, and it, it serves to really reinforce a lot of great themes and ethics about self-interest, about uh, uh, objective morality, where does morality come from? And the main character does several terrible things. He he cheats on his wife, then he has the um, affair covered up by hiring someone to kill his mistress. He also embezzles money and he hides that too. And at the end of the movie, you've already given it away. Uh, there looks like he's going to be exposed and it's all going to fall apart, but he's not. The, the murder of the mistress is blamed on someone else. The funds are not, uh, you know, it's all kept secret. And three months later, uh, we see him very happy at a wedding, uh, about to plan uh, his own child's wedding. <sighs> so what do I say about that? Um, this relates to the broad theme of the relationship between virtue and happiness. Um, it looks like on a, um, on a subjective level, this person is happy, even though he's not virtuous. So if you think that virtue and happiness are supposed to go hand in hand. You cannot live a happy life without being virtuous. And he looks like he's a counterexample to that because he looks like he is living a happy life, but he's not virtuous. What uh, a lot of more traditional philosophers would have said, well, that's just a simplistic definition of happiness. Um, happiness isn't just a matter of subjective well-being. It's not a matter just of how you feel in the moment. There's more objective criteria to happiness than just that. And I'll include, often include virtue on that objective list. So you, you have to objectively be a virtuous person to live a happy life, even if you think your life is going really well in the moment. Um, so they would say, no, 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 no. This guy, even though he looks like he's content, he's not really happy. Um, that's a tough sell sometimes, right? Uh, uh, I mean, what more do you want? He's 
He's married now, you know, contentedly. He's planning his daughter's wedding. He's financially secure. He got away with everything. Uh, you know, if, if that's not the happy life, then um, I don't care. I'll I'll sign up for it anyway, right? Um, so, uh, but your 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 ultimately your question is is in line with my thinking. Um, I do think that let's take away the word happiness and let's take use something like flourishing or what Aristotle would call eudaimonia. So the, the flourishing life here, um, the life of well-being. I do ultimately think that that will require one to be virtuous in one's character. And so that will require one to make judgments about people that they're mistaken in thinking that their life is going well. So I, I gave a long-winded answer to ultimately agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's interesting too that film. I don't know why it made me think of this, but at the end, the rabbi character who's dancing blind, and the whole thing is there's this sort of visual: who sees what? God is watching, and and then the guy who's most committed to God is dancing blind, which is a fascinating kind of concluding scene. It is. So I talk about that. I ask my students this question: um, What is Woody Allen trying to tell us at the end of the movie? Is he telling us that the life of self-interest, which is what Judah, the main character who gets away with the crimes, uh, is that the life we should live? Well, if that's what Woody Allen's trying to tell us, he, I think he would have given us that scene of Judah being happy and planning his wedding, uh, his, his daughter's wedding. Uh, that would have been the final scene of the movie. But it's not the final scene of the movie. The final scene of the movie is instead we move from Judah to Rabbi Ben, and we see Rabbi Ben, blind, as you said, but dancing very joyously with his own daughter at her wedding. So that's what we're supposed to leave the movie with that image firmly in in mind. So um, I'm not sure how to put all the pieces together. Is it that um, he thinks ultimately the virtuous person did have the most happiest life, uh, the happiest life because Rabbi Ben is clearly the virtuous person in the movie. Um, Is it that he ultimately has some kind of uh, uh, secretive relativism going on? There's Judah's life. There's Rabbi Ben's life. There's just a diversity of lives and there's no ultimately best life. I can't really completely put, you know, put the pieces together, but it is worth uh, noting that the virtuous person does get the last scene. Yeah. Yeah. Who is blind, which is interesting. Yeah. That's is, right. is he saying that's naive or he's ignorance is bliss because his seeing, he no longer sees. And so much of the film is based on visual metaphors. That's just an right. interesting, yeah. even when, even when the, the one scene I think where he's going up to the, um, where, where the murder is about to happen or whatever, and the lights go out of the, of the, the you know, the, on the on the headlights of the car. It's just so interesting. Yep, yep. And and Judah, the the we well, needed a name for him, but the the bad guy, if you want to call him that, the not virtuous person. What is his profession? He's an ophthalmologist. Right, so he, right, right. He's an eye doctor. He studies people's eyes. So he and he has an appointment with Rabbi Ben, who comes in and he's losing his sight. But Rabbi Ben is the one who at a moral level sees much better than Judah does. At a physical level, he doesn't. He's losing his sight. But at a moral level, he's much more perceptive. He's much more deep and profound than than Judah is. Um, and, and according to Rabbi Ben, uh, to bring in the other metaphor, the eyes of God, God also has eyes, and God's eyes are watching over everyone uh, and sees what Rabbi Ben's doing and also sees what Judah is doing and sees the murder that Judah orchestrates, which makes fe- Judah feel guilty for a little bit after he does it because he fears that God's watching him. But then when there are no consequences, as weeks go by and there are no consequences, Judah goes back to thinking, well, maybe God's eyes aren't watching after all. Maybe that God doesn't exist. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a, a brilliant movie. Highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't seen it. What do you struggle with personally with character the most? Like, where do you find like you need the most work or, or what, 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 what has been the sort of character pursuit 
lately in your own life that where you're like, oh man, I, I gotta, I, I need some more formation myself here. <laughs> that's a big, that's a big curveball. <laughs> Put me on the spot here. Um, well, I think there, there are a couple things. Um, I mean, I would say earlier in my career, I was, it was a lot of struggle with things like envy, um, looking at other people in my profession and uh, being envious of their accomplishments. Um, and, uh, you know, not proud of that, of course, it's this is character flaws. So, but owning up to those character flaws. Um, these days, I would cite something else because I'm, I'm, you know, I've been in the profession for a long time. I'm, I'm pretty kind of set my ways and established it in my career. Um, it'll be two other things. One would be the the kind of opposite now it's kind of like pride um, and trying to maintain humility, trying to um, remember where I came from uh, professionally and academically, uh, trying to uh, give thanks to others always for helping me along the way and not making it feel like, make it feel to me like it was all my own doing and my, you know, wonderful abilities and powers and so forth. That's, that's one thing, certainly working on humility. Uh, the other is patience. Uh, I have, Three small kids, age eight, six, and four. Um, we have been, uh, you know, in in isolation here for months and months and months, um, with with very little, uh, you know, social engagement outside of the house. And uh, they are absolutely wonderful kids, but um, but life is very, very full. So trying to be patient with each of them and what they care about, and giving them the time they need while doing my own work and helping my wife with her career um, is uh, is it, it's been it's been pushing me in positive ways, um, make, make me a better person. It's interesting. We, we Right now we are going through this pandemic as we were talking about, you know, you're being, you know, sequestered there with your family. Every, like every, like most of the country is, is, is sort of in this situation that can be trying. Is it, I mean, that right now, a friend just, I was just talking with a friend who's in Arizona. Their infection rate is 27% positive. The tests. Florida has 15,000 new cases recorded. I mean, we are spiking. We are spiking. I mean, in, in, in cases, I mean, it's unbelievable that we have more positive cases now than when we're shutting down when it, it was on the, on the rapid rise. Do you think, is this a character problem? Because it just seems like so, it, it doesn't seem like it's rocket science for how we turn this around, right? Like you wear masks, don't pack into bars, don't pack into religious congregations. Um, and there's certain things that like, if we just were kind of diligent about this, then we could really save a lot of lives. But it just seems like people don't care. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not a scientist. And I'm, I don't know all the explanations. I've heard a variety of different explanations for this recent rise, um, some of which has to do with, you know, uh, uh, rolling back the restrictions too quickly. Um, some of it has to, has to do with um, the geographical areas of the country. I, so I, I just want to be upfront that I, I'm not the best person on, on that side of things. But um, can I comment on certainly there being a lot of cases of people who were presented with the information and they, they needed and didn't respond accordingly? Um, that's a character matter for sure, right? So you, you're you're very clearly told um, here's this problem, here's the te- steps to take to address it. Uh, the steps are not onerous; they're re- relatively minor like wearing a mask and keeping the distance and so forth. And yet you don't take those steps. So uh, what what could be the, the explanation there? There could be a couple of things. One is you just don't believe the experts, right? So you, that's a that's an intellectual issue. This is a matter of intellectual virtue or a, a epistemic virtue. So you're not willing to 
grants authority to what these experts are telling you to do. And so you don't see that authority to them. That's a, a failure maybe of epistemic humility or intellectual humility or intellectual open-mindedness or so forth. There could be another part of it though, which is, okay, yeah, I believe this in theory. I believe this in, in abstract. I, I know what they're saying, but you know, it's Friday night and I want to go out. This is what Aristotle would call weakness of will um, or, or incontinence. Right? You know what the right thing to do is. You've got the information and you do believe it now, but here comes this temptation to do something else in opposition. Go out to the, the club, go out to the bar, um, you know, uh, socialize with your friends without masks. Um, and the temptation overrides the judgment of what's right to do. That's also a character flaw, a different, different character flaw. This is a now moral character flaw. The first one was an intellectual character flaw, but they're both character flaws. Is it true? I was reading a piece in The Atlantic recently, and actually another podcast I do, a buddy of mine and I t discussed, it was really interesting, written by a woman who teaches law and psychology at Penn. And she was basically saying that, look, we get morally excised and all worked up about people that are making bad choices. And we shame them and we're very prideful. And she's like, well, Maybe that's not what we should be focusing on because humans are just bad risk assessors. We're messy. We're complex. We're, as you're saying, we're not as good as we think we are. She said, let's not be mad at the people making bad choices, but be mad at the, at the conditions that are creating the possibility for the bad choices. So we have people, you know, kind of charged with the public good who are kind of, who are, who, who are opening bars on these things. And so she's like, you know, it's easy to get, to judge the, and feel morally superior, the young people doing what young people do. Like young people are, you know, are pretty impulsive and they want to do what they want to do. It's like, why aren't we more excised about publicly? We've, we've given, we've given them the space to make these choices. Right. Right. And, and, and it's, and it's, it's literally killing us. I mean, it, the, the lack of character here is literally killing people. <laughs> Right, 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 right. That's a very, very good point. And, and I, I want to, it reminds me to say that it, I didn't want my previous remarks to come across as too harsh, as if I was, uh, you know, got it all figured out. And I know I'm the virtuous person. I know what to do. And I'm judging these people who have made these mistakes. And so I don't want to, I really apologize if it came across that way. No, uh, not at all. Not at all. Yeah, not yeah, at all. Yeah, but, but, I, but just to your, to your listeners. Um, and then, uh, right. So one lesson of the studies that I've been, we talked about in the early part of our interview is that the the situation matters a whole lot. It's not just you know um, me and my character can weather any storm that I go into. No, you put people into different situations that matters a heck of a lot to how they behave. Just go back to the bathroom study again, right? Whether people helped carry those papers or not was a function of just a slight change in the situation, whether they're leaving the bathroom or they were walking in the hallway. Well, now you ramp up the situations a whole lot more. We're not talking about uh, you know more trivial things. We're talking about you provide easy access to group interaction for younger people who haven't had much recently. Well, sure. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a really appealing situation that's going to be much harder to resist. Um, so I think there's, there's a lot to be said for what, what you're suggesting there. Um, don't, don't just leave it up to individual personal responsibility, but also create, as much as one can, um, conducive environmental situations for acting well and ultimately for virtue. I was talking recently with a friend who's actually in Arizona and he's a science writer now, but he was, he was younger. He was a, a submariner. He was on submarines in the Navy. Uh, he was in a nuclear submarine uh, crewman. And we were talking about how what's interesting is in, in wartime, what usually happens is we make some sacrifices, maybe some rationing and stuff like that. But, but, you have what you have is a group of people, usually young men, who are required to bear the brunt of the sacrifice in the war, and they have to go undergo 
massive character formation to get from pretty self-interested young people to people that will put their lives in each other's hands like you would in a nuclear submarine you know everybody is responsible for everybody else and he was basically saying um he was basically uh saying that what's different in this pandemic is that we're all combatants right that we're all if the enemy is the is the uh, is the virus, we're all combatants, and yet none of us are going through the moral formation, right? Like necessary to kind of like we're we're not going through the kind of deep character formation you'd go through in a platoon and basic training all this stuff to take care and responsibility for each other, right? So do we wind up with do we do we wind up with a uniquely uh, ill suited kind of combination where we're asking people to ramp up their character level, right? As you would be in a combat situation. And yet, on the other hand, you're kind of, most people are ill-equipped for that. We don't have any kind of uh, process to shape, reshape people in this regard. Yeah, that's tough. I never thought about it that way. Um, I, w- I would I wonder if the analogy would be more to um, the people in the hospitals who are, are really confronting it on, a, on an hourly basis and whose character has to, to ramp up quickly, like you were talking about. Um, and then for people like you and me, um, the we were not like frontline soldiers. We're more maybe like in the in the reserve and in, in the back helping with supplies and and things like that, where, um, you know, we just have to make some some character adjustments act fairly well but is you know is heroic action required of us um i'm not not so sure right not heroic yeah. but, but responsible we, we have to see each yeah, other yeah. we're all we're, anything i do could affect it's like we're one big platoon Every, anybody anything any lack lacks judgment or recklessness i do could affect everybody yeah that's right that's right yeah fair enough yeah yeah, yeah that's right that's right yeah um so it, you know but I, I just think a lot of people are stepping up to the plate um in certain areas of their character so that they're exhibiting a lot of more self-control um a lot more more patience a lot more discipline uh foregoing opportunities that they would have had six months ago for the sake of th- their self-interest or uh the family's self-interest or the friends self or, or the country's good um I, I i i'm here willing to, to be pretty positive about how many many people are are dealing with this um now could there be more done for sure? And are there many, are there also some who are falling short? Yes. Who go to the bars and get others in trouble? Yes. But I don't know. Um, maybe, this is, maybe this is my own misguided uh, positive character assessment. I haven't read my own book uh, kind of thing going on here. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm pretty certainly impressed with many people in Europe uh, around the world. And uh, in parts of America too. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, because it does, it's almost like a, a character stress test, right? Like you're a cardiologist and you see yeah. how you're doing and you're on the treadmill and you're seeing, and it's almost, I mean, some of the, some of the real challenges have kind of shown us like, you know, maybe some things about uh, the nature of our culture where, you know, that we're, it is like a moral x-ray or something where, gosh, maybe we do need some sense of the kind of character formation that would help us see us ourselves as being in things together. And being responsible for and with each other. Good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to know when it, things will come, if ever get back to normal or when this will be over. But um, I, I'm interested to see if at the end of all this, if there is an end, what the implications will be for community, um, whether we'll feel a greater closeness to other people, um, whether we'll uh, not value more superfluous things as much as we did in the past. Um I mean, I, overall terrible, but I, I see some really good aspects of what's come about through this uh, as far as um, reorienting 
people to what really matters in life. One of which is is community and togetherness and 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 being with each other. So I hope I hope those will continue to be at the forefront uh, in the future. Christian, thanks so much for your work on character, and thanks for writing your book, and thanks for spending some time on the podcast talking with me about it. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really enjoyed this this really stimulating conversation. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.